Over the last couple weeks, we have been looking at different characters in the biblical uh, story of Christmas time, of the nativity, the various characters that you find in your manger scene. Well, here this morning, we're looking at a character that should be there, but for some reason, nobody ever puts this guy in their manger. So, let's take a look at what Matthew writes about him. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew writes, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to your word, Lord, that we would find the hope that is in Scripture. Lord, that we would understand Scripture and understand your word not as an escape, not as a fantasy, but rather, Lord, as the truth, which deals with the stark reality that many of us deal with and many of us face. Lord, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. It was a blistering hot day, one of those days where you had 100% humidity and 100 degrees, 100 degrees of temperature. So those two friends of ours who were serving um, as missionaries decided that they were going to cool off. And so they decided they were going to cool off. They went inside, made some tropical drinks, and they were going to get into the uh, swimming pool that was outside of their complex. So they went over to the swimming pool, but as they got in the swimming pool, the swimming pool didn't have any water in it. And instead, but down at the deep end, the pool had been drained, and down at the deep end there was about two feet of water all the way down at the bottom of the pool. So needing a break, they and their friends went down and got into the bottom of the swimming pool with their, some tropical drinks, put their floaties in the water, and they laid around and floated in the swimming pool, relaxed and splashed, had a good time, goofed around, stayed in there longer than, anyone, than they should have, but everyone kept lingering, hanging out in this two feet of water. Because with the high walls of the pool that surrounded them, And as they lay there on the floaties looking out, all they could see was this crystal clear and bright blue sky. And at that moment, they could have been anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. But they knew 
that as they would walk out of the deep end of the pool and into the shallow and out of the pool, that they were walking into a world that would slap them in the face as they would be confronted by coming out of the pool of the stark reality of where they actually were. You see, our friends Luke and Julie were our missionaries in Haiti, and they're the directors of a medical clinic in, outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And they walk out of the pool, and they're surrounded by abject poverty. They walked out of the pool and surrounded by a community that's in the midst of the, currently the worst cholera epidemic in the world at this, at this point in time. A place where half the children are malnourished, the highest rate of HIV and AIDS outside of Africa, killing 20% of infants who are born, 200,000 children orphaned because of HIV AIDS. Poor medical care, voodoo witch doctors who do their treatments, and after their treatments, their treatments only spread the disease, disease further. And there's this, this, this couple working as the directors of a medical cl clinic to bring hope, to bring healing in the midst of one of the worst places on earth. And as they got, as they waited, came out of the deep end and they got to the edge of the pool and were standing on the edge of the pool, Julie turned to her husband and she said, Luke, let's just get back in the pool. Let's just get back in the pool and pretend this isn't where we are. Let's just pretend that this isn't real and that everything is okay. And you know what? I don't blame them, you know? And there's certainly times when you're in there in the midst of this, you say, let's just get back in the pool. But for Luke and Julie, as time went on, that started to become a phrase that they would say. That in the midst of after a tough day, a midst after a tough day after disease and corruption in which they were regularly dealing with after more of their medical equipment had gotten stolen, they just finished up and they'd see each other and say, you know what, Let, let's just go float in the pool. Let's, go just, let's just go pretend that we're somewhere else. It became to be a, a metaphor and a phrase that they would say of when things were difficult, when the stark reality of the world outside of the pool began to become overwhelming. They would say, you know what, it's time. Let's just get back in the pool. You know, absolutely, for every one of us, there are times when you just need a break. And many of us look to Christmas time and the Christmas seasons to be, to be a break. But also, for many of us, we look to Christmas, and we have made Christmas into this, this fantasy escape from reality. That suddenly at Christmas, we are all longing for sugar plums and warm figgy pudding and hanging mistletoe, and collecting our chestnuts to roast over the open fire, and that somehow, in the midst of the Christmas season, magically, our problems all, they just go away. That at Christmas, at least once a year, drunks become sober, jerks become nice, Scrooges are magically transformed into doing right to the tiny Tims of the world. But the Bible doesn't let us have such a saccharine view of Christmas. I know it's pretty awful, right? I mean, we come to church on Christmas this time of year. The music is so nostalgic. The stage is so beautiful. Things are lit up. Everyone's wearing their reds and their, and their Christmas colors, and everything's looking nice. And, we're, and you see people that you haven't seen in a, you have to see people you haven't seen in a long time, and everyone's thinking happy thoughts. That is until the Bible reading and the sermon, and then everything just turns into ugliness, ugliness and horror. You know, I mean, I feel you. I, I, I feel you on this, right? But the Bible does not portray these quaint, idyllic, nostalgic Christmas stories. And in fact, every passage of Scripture that speaks of the birth of Jesus Christ 
speaks to the birth of Christ in the midst of the stark reality of the world outside of the walls of our swimming pools. And the Word of God does this. So that as we meditate on the truths of Scripture, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that the truths of Scripture would not just be this escapist fantasy for a world that doesn't exist, but rather that we would have, because of the truth of Scripture, because of the truth of Christmas, that we would have an enduring hope, a continued source of joy for life outside of the swimming pool. Well, you consider the nativity at Bethlehem. The idyllic little town sitting on a hill, how still we see thee lie. But what was going on outside of the walls of the swimming pool in Bethlehem to say? Well, the first thing that was there was a tyrannical oppressor by the name of King Herod. And Herod, this is Herod known as Herod the Great. Well, who was this guy? He was a real person, uh, lived, and actually just about seven years ago, no, 2007 or so, they actually found Herod's tomb. Many of the things that he built still exist. You can go visit them today. Herod was a real person, did all kinds of things, built stuff. He had this knack for overly taxing and oppressing his people and then making them overly joyful when he built them like a library and gave them a scrap of what he, of what he took from them. But what Herod was known for more than his uh, restricted philanthropy was that Herod was known for his indiscriminate cruelty. Herod was a guy who murdered three of his sons, murdered his favorite wife, and he had his young brother-in-law drowned in a swimming pool um, at their winter retreat. Herod was the guy that Caesar said of Herod that it was you were better off being one of Herod's pigs than being one of Herod's family members. That's what Caesar said about this guy. And so when the text says in Matthew chapter 2 that when Herod the king heard this, heard what the Magi said, where is the one born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him is this massive understatement because they knew who King Herod was. And they knew that if Herod was troubled about a future king, that Herod was likely to do some crazy things. Because for Herod, the arrival of the true kings of the Jews was a threat to Herod's throne, not only to his throne, but to the corrupt religious leaders over Israel at that time and the political leadership in Jerusalem. And Herod was no fool. He knew a political rival when he saw one. And so Herod decides that he's going to stand up and he's going to act like a king. And so he's going to act like the king by massacring all the baby boys around Bethlehem. Now let's consider who Matthew puts in his manger scene that he would have on his, on his uh, mantle over his fireplace. Well, you've got Mary and Joseph, and you've got the wise men. And behind them is this psychotic, despotic tyrant who is bloodthirsty trying to care, kill everybody that's in the scene. And not only that, but you have a manger scene that is surrounded by a town and a village that is wailing because their children are no more. And it is there that Jesus comes. You see, Herod is just one of many people, political rulers who are called great, who do atrocious things. I mean, you consider some of these things in the last 50 years, last 75 years. Consider what's going on today with ISIS in the Middle East and how many people ISIS has slaughtered. And then you can realize that as many as ISIS has slaughtered, for every one person that ISIS has slaughtered, Assad has killed seven times that many. And then you take that and you 
add a zero onto that number, and you get the number of people that Idi Amin murdered. And then you add another zero onto that number, and you get the number of people that Saddam Hussein slaughtered. And then you take that number and you multiply it by two, we're up to about four million now, and that gives you the number of people that Lenin slaughtered in political oppression. And then after that, I mean, there's many more we could put in here, but then you get to Hitler. You know, Hitler slaughtered 17 million people, roughly estimate, and he wasn't the worst. You had Stalin, who was 30, had 30% more, 23 million people killed under Stalin. And both of those guys are like child's play compared to Mao Zedong who killed, who slaughtered 65 million people during his rule. And Herod is just one of these political rulers who knew that Jesus Christ was a threat to everything that he, would, that he had built his kingdom upon. Yet the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem with this psychotic, despotic tyrant Lurking in the background is good news. And it's good news because Jesus is the long-awaited king who brings that corruption to an end. You know, we sit here this morning here in southern Maryland and we say, yes, that is good news. But I think we miss some of the weight of it because of the blessings that the Lord has given to us. Here in America where we have a stable government, we have personal freedom, have freedom to worship that we don't have the fear, the imminent fear of the government suddenly deciding to eradicate us or our loved ones. But consider what Christmas means to Syrian Christians right now, who, like Mary and Joseph, became political exiles fleeing for their lives. Consider what Christmas means for Christians in North Korea or Eritrea or Somalia, where there is severe persecution under corrupt and wicked governments. Consider that. The news that Jesus is born in Bethlehem with Herod under the reign of Herod is good news because Jesus is the king who is coming, the king who has come and will come again to establish a new kingdom that will crush all of the Herods in this world, a kingdom where tyrants are deposed and destroyed, a kingdom with Lord Jesus at the head before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, yes, some out of joyful praise and others out of forced submission, yet every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so for Christians in Syria right now, suddenly, when beyond the walls of your swimming pool is the latest Herod to rule in this world, Now suddenly, Christmas becomes good news. It becomes good news not as some sort of escapism, but because now you have hope and you have courage to face the day because tyrants lose and King Jesus wins as the King of kings and the ruler over all. But even in the midst of that, that's not the worst thing that is outside of the swimming pool, outside the walls of the pool in Bethlehem, if you will. Because not only are there tyrannical oppressors, but there's also destroyers of God. You see, Herod was not just concerned about the political threat. No, he was overtly trying to thwart God and to eliminate him from his presence. You see, the text says this, when Herod heard this, what the wise men said, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests 
and scribes of the people, that is, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, he inquired of them of where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So what does Herod ask the religious leaders? Where is the Christ to be born? That is, where is the Messiah going to be born? The long-expected Jesus, the one who was born to set his people free. Where is the one who is the hope of the ages that God himself is going to work and bring about? Where is this child to be born? You know, today, skeptics say things like prophecy can't happen. So when you read prophecy in the Bible, it must have been written after the events occurred because nobody can tell the future, and because nobody can tell the future, therefore the prophecy in the Bible didn't happen. It was written after the Bible was written. So prophecy can't happen because nobody can, no one is able to tell the future. But if you talk to someone about this and they say, no, prophecy didn't happen, no one can tell the tr- future, and you say, but what if it did? What if someone actually did tell the future? What does that indicate? Well, they say, well, it indicates nothing because people can't tell the future. But what if they did tell the future? Well, they can't, so they don't. But what if they actually did? What would actually happen if there was a prophecy that actually became fulfilled? What would you need to have? Well, you would need to have, if it actually could happen, but it doesn't happen, well, you would need to have somebody or something, a force that was bigger than history. You would need to have something that was bigger than history that could not only say what was going to happen, but make sure that what was, what was going to happen was actually going to happen. That you would actually have to have, for prophecy to be true, you actually have to have a God to make that work. Now consider the weight of that as it comes to Herod. Herod is asking, what is the prophecy of God that is coming to fruition under my domain? And what is his reaction? His reaction is this. He tells them, go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Who do you worship? You worship God. And Herod knew that. He knew who this child was. And Herod's coming and he says, where is this child that when we bring me word that I too may come and worship him? Now, did Herod want to worship him? No. He wanted to destroy him. He wanted to thwart the plan of God, is that this thing, this action that Herod's about to bring back about in slaughtering the babies in the land was none less than an attempt by Herod to wipe out the chosen one of God. It wasn't just a political threat. It was a religious threat that God was at work, and Herod is saying, not in my life, not under my rule. That's not really that much different today, is it? I mean, there are so many who would rather eradicate God from their lives than submit to him. People would have to rather to pretend that it's not true, that God doesn't exist, that he's not real, and anything that is real about him, I'm going to eradicate him and get rid of him. I'm going to do that. I'd rather do that than to submit to him. And certainly around the globe, there are innumerable kings and governments that have tried to solve their problems by eradicating Jesus or his presence or Christians or Christianity from their midst. But not just so far off, but how about here? There are many people who grew up in the church, who grew up around the church, who grew up around Christians who would rather eradicate God than submit to him, who would rather 
eradicate God and the presence of God in their life or anything that reminds them of God or Jesus Christ. They would rather get rid of all those things than submit to them. But there is a problem. That if there is a God who is big enough to foretell the future and make it come to pass, he is bigger than your attempts to eradicate him from your life. So which makes more sense? To act like Herod and to deny, to ignore, to try to eradicate or thwart God and thwart his plans? What makes more sense? To do that or to do what the wise men did, which is to submit to him and to worship him and to join and enter into his kingdom. You know, particularly at this time of the year, some of you are here because you're being nice to another family member. That you've come to church because, you know, we know we're going to see mom. Mom means that means we're going to go to church. If we're visiting that religious brother or sibling of mine, that means that we're going to go to church. And so you're saying, okay, we've got to go to church. Hopefully we'll hear a nice, warm, fuzzy message. Sorry about that part. Um, and, and you're here today. Well, what is this, how does this passage encourage you and call to you? It's saying don't choose Herod's path. Don't choose convincing yourself that God or Jesus doesn't exist and that you can eradicate him from your life and that you can successfully do that because you are in charge. I can understand that for you, if outside the walls of your swimming pool, as you're floating around on your little floaty, I can understand that if outside the walls of your swimming pool that you look over that and you see God or Jesus and that terrifies you, I I understand that for some people. I understand why that happens. But I would plead with you and I would urge you to not follow the path of Herod to run from God to try to pretend that he doesn't exist and to try to eradicate him, but rather to run to him. Because the good news of Christmas is that God has come in Jesus Christ that he came into a world of darkness, a world where people hated him, and he came into a world of darkness to pursue after people who would have nothing to do with him. Indeed, John characterizes it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is a reference to Jesus. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Herods of the world have not overcome it. And the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, through Jesus Christ. Yet, the world did not know him. God through Jesus, pursues people who are in darkness. He pursues people who, yes, outright hate him and would destroy him. And Jesus would himself be destroyed on a cross so that you, so that we, who would destroy him, would be given life instead of death. And he invites us to run to him and to be filled with hope even in the midst of a world where people will destroy or seek to destroy God. Well, what else is outside the walls of the swimming pool in Bethlehem? It's not only is there a tyrannical oppressor and those that would destroy, seek to destroy God, but there is also a community that is filled with mourning and grief. The text says this, that when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, for that Christmas in Bethlehem, it wasn't met with throngs of angels singing, but with people wailing. And they were wailing because their loved one was no more, having been murdered out of the jealousy of a psychotic and despotic tyrant. And as many of you know, Christmas is often the most lonely time of year. Time of year because of challenges and problems, time of year because, one, it's a time of year when more people die at this time of year than any other time of year. It's also the time of year when people are the most lonely because of loved ones that they've lost, because of estrangement in their life, because they say, here comes another Christmas, and yet again, I am alone. But let us again notice that this is where Jesus came. He came to Bethlehem. He came to a town where there were people mourning and wailing because of the loss of their loved ones. He came to a town such as Bethlehem, and he came to Bethlehem, and he came to this place because we need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. We need a resurrection. We need life instead of death. We need Jesus to come again so that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because those things have passed away just as God said they would when he returns. And this is the hope of Christmas in which we fix ourselves. Again, consider what is outside the pool walls of Bethlehem. When we consider those things, we see that, yes, Jesus came to Bethlehem. Moreover, he came for Bethlehem. That Christmas is for Bethlehem. It is for us. Christmas is for the stark reality outside of the walls of our swimming pool. Christmas is for those living under the latest Herod. Because Jesus is the King Eternal, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord of Lords, that he is the King of Kings. Christmas is for those who, for Christians who worship in fear. Because as they worship King Jesus, he hears their praises and he hears their prayers and he will set them free. And Christmas is for those who mourn. It is for the mourners of Bethlehem because Jesus brings eternal comfort and a resurrection. Yes, Christmas is for Bethlehem, but moreover, Christmas is for you. And so, yes, I do hope that this Christmas that you do get to go float around in a swimming pool with tropical beverages. I do hope that you actually get some figgy pudding, whatever that stuff is, and that if you get it, I hope that it actually tastes good. You know, I do hope that someone meets you under the mistletoe and that you actually roast chestnuts over an open fire. Just be sure to poke a hole in them first so they don't explode like little missiles in your fireplace. I do hope that Christmas is a break and a respite from normal reality and the normal stress of life. But more than that, I hope that you rejoice and that your Christmas is 
filled with hope because to the stark reality of your world, Christmas has come. Jesus has come. And he will come again. So may we hope in him. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And, Lord, there's a huge part of us that just wants to escape and to pretend that the struggles of our life are not there, that they do not exist, and that, yes, that we're living the life of floating around in the swimming pool, drinking frosty beverages. But, Father, I thank you that the truth of Scripture is not fantasy escapism, but it is the truth that gives us hope in the midst of hardship, that gives us joy in the midst of great challenges, that gives us endurance and courage in the midst of despotic tyrants and people who would destroy and remove God from their life, that it gives us hope and courage and confidence and peace in the midst of the heartache and mourning of this world. And so, Lord Jesus, yes, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come and set us free. Come, just as you came once, Lord, and you said that you would come, Lord, we long for the day when you will come again and you will make this world right and that things will be once again the way that they should be and that injustice and oppression and tyrants and grief and pain will be no more and that every day for all eternity it will get better and better, that every day for all eternity it will be more beautiful and more excellent and more awesome that the day before, Lord Jesus, come and fill us with that hope as we're confronted with the struggles around us. In Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.